Hey, uh, I'm Andrew. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, 9 a.m., how we feeling? You all doing okay? Coffee's kicking in. We're feeling okay. Good to see you. Uh, Pastor Mike's on vacation, a well-earned break, so pray for him and Stacy. We really appreciate them, but we also don't want them to get burnt out, right? So you gotta take your vacay and use it and enjoy it. So pray for his family. Uh, you're stuck with me today, so <laughs> ready to jump in? Awesome. Uh, turn over to 1 John chapter one. Um, I'm gonna ask a couple questions, then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in together. 1 John chapter one. By the way, we're gonna go into chapter two, verse seven. So that's kind of our section today. Uh, I absolutely love this passage. And uh, the title today is The One We Have Known. Because I'm convinced that when we genuinely know Jesus, it changes everything about us. Like genuinely, for real. Um, Maybe you're here today and you feel burnt out on Christianity. Maybe you feel like what you originally had and the spark in your life when you got to know God isn't what it is now. Maybe for you, it started off as just a dumb choice that's turned into a secret habit that is now keeping you in darkness and out of the light of walking with God. Or maybe today, you feel like God is mad at you, even though you're a Christian and you're not sure how to come back into fellowship with him. Well, John has a lot to say about what it means to walk in the light as Jesus himself is in the light. And so I'm really excited to jump in and talk about that with you. But first, uh, can we pray together? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And um, Father, I just pray that your word would speak. Um, Lord, I, I've studied this passage and people here uh, are waiting to hear what you have to say, but I just pray that you would move and that you would um, empower me with your spirit, empower uh, the listeners with your Holy Spirit and help us all to become more like your son. God, our desire here is not just to, to do church, but to be church and to be transformed, to, to have genuine honorable desires because you've transformed us from the inside out. And so I pray that we would cooperate with your spirit today and that you do something really special. We ask this in the powerful name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Alrighty, 1 John chapter one, verse one. By the way, who wrote 1 John? 10 points. John, right? John wrote 1 John. He also wrote Revelation. He also wrote 2 John, 3 John, and the book of John. And so here we are in 1 John chapter one. Now this first verse is a little confusing and so we're gonna have another translation pop up in a second, but check this out. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now in the original language, there's actually no main verb in the first two verses, wait until verse three for the main verb. And so I like how the NLT says it. Check it out, they say, they say this, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. You see that? Because in verse three he says, we are reporting or we are claiming or proclaiming to you. Meaning he's got all this stuff to say um, before he gives us the main idea that this whole chapter is a message that he is so excited to communicate to his audience. So with that in mind, chapter one, verse one, that which was from the beginning. Now when you read the scriptures, do you feel like you see the cross references, the hyperlinks to other parts of the Bible? Because the biblical authors are geniuses. And so what other book begins with the beginning? Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God, He is with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, without Him nothing was made that had been made, in Him was life, right? But then also, what was the other book that has beginning? Genesis, Genesis chapter one, verse one. God created the heavens and the earth in the 
beginning. And so he's tying together this idea that before time itself even existed, there was this beginning being. And check it out. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now again, even the word word is a throwback to, Genesis, to John chapter one, right? He has the logos, the word, uh, the word is with God. And so this is all about King Jesus. And John is saying it in the most cryptic but beautiful way to say the one from the beginning, the ancient one, the God over all, we touched him. We, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him with our hands, we heard him with our ears. It, it, it was a very physical, real thing. This guy's got a message to say, and this report is dripping with this actually happened. You see, there was a myth happening around this time in Christianity called Gnosticism, and you can go look it up. It's very interesting, barbaric, and weird the further down the bunny trail you go, but their belief was that Jesus came as a spirit and he wasn't actually in the body at all, that he was just some, some spirit. He didn't really die on the cross because you know, how could God die and all this stuff, right? And they had a really wacky interpretation because they couldn't comprehend the idea that God, the holy God of all, would come down into the dirt and dwell amongst broken humans. And it is, it's a wild thought, isn't it? But John's like, no, 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 we saw him. We, 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 we walked with him, we, we touched him. This, this actually happened. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you feel like that moment completely changed you forever? Maybe it was the birth of a child, maybe it was a wedding day, maybe it was a moment in your life when you experienced true justice over something that you were fighting against. Have you had those moments? Well, John looks back in his life and he says, Jesus changed everything for me. And, and he says, it's so weird, it's a paradox, because he's from the beginning, but we, we saw him. And we, we, we touched him with our hands, but he is the word of God. And so it's, it's this paradox of God's absolute grandeur, but also his very approachable physical nature. But he goes on, he says this in verse two. The life was made manifest, or was revealed, and we have seen it, and we are testifying it, and proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. He says this, we have seen Jesus and we are reporting to you about Jesus because I would argue that if you have a genuine experience with God, you can't help but talk about it. I, I get frustrated personally when we do evangelism sermons where we tell you go share your faith, you ought to because I think that evangelism is a byproduct of our Christian DNA. I would argue that when you are transformed from the inside out by the God who loves you more than you love yourself, you can't help but talk about it. Either A, you don't know the message, or B, you probably um, haven't experienced God truly. Because when you get experiencing the grace and love of God, you can't help but talk about it. It oozes. It's kind of like when a baby bird is born and it knows how to fly without anybody teaching it. It's in its DNA. Or, or how a doctor today can find out the gender of a baby in utero before it's even born. There, there's some instructions built into it. And I would argue that Christians should be sharing our faith because of how good Jesus is. I was at a barber shop a couple months ago and I'm sitting down and the usual conversation pops up. All right, man, so uh, 
I'm like, what do you do? He's like, I cut hair. I'm like, duh, okay. And then, then he asked me, well, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, excellent, here we go, you ready? It's either a conversation ender for me or it gets really weird, one or the other, you know? And so I'm like, well, I actually hang out with students and I teach them about Jesus. And they're like, oh, okay, what, you know? Like, that's what you do for your, your free time? Or no, that's my job, you know? And so we start talking about Jesus, we start talking about my belief, what church I go to, how I love to encourage students to have hope in their life right now, to find Jesus as the answer to the universe, and then teach them how to live godly life. That's my, that's my passion, right? That's where's God, where's God got me right now. And so I'm teaching them this, and it was a good conversation. Go home. A month later, I show up to young adults. By the way, can we give a shout out for Tiago, our young adult director? He's amazing, okay? If you don't know, by the way, if you are between 18 to 28 and you do not know, there's a super awesome group that meets on Tuesday nights here at 7 p.m. Come to Young Adults. It's a really, really exciting group of people. That being said, man, I showed up to Young Adults and this kid walks over to me and he's like, hey, um, this is weird, but I'm here because of you. And all glory to God. And I'm like, okay, weird, why? And he goes, you were at that barber shop and I was like three chairs down and I heard you talking about Jesus. And I'm like, that's great, praise the Lord. But in this moment, John is saying, I got a message to tell and I can't help but tell it. And so again, as you're hearing this, my challenge to you is to ask, is the message of Jesus contagious enough that I believe enough that I want to share it, not how ought I share it, right? It's not guilt-driven, it's love-driven. And John is just oozing with the love. And he goes on in verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Remember, the one that we experienced, and I want you to imagine John's story here. He's not just saying, we saw Jesus physically, this happened. He's also saying, this is the Jesus that with his words that I heard calmed a storm. This is the Jesus that when Thomas was saying, I'm not sure I believe, behind a locked door, Jesus walked through the wall and says, peace be still, I am here. This is the Jesus that, you fill in the blank, that he experienced personally. And and he's saying, we are reporting this all to you. And why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Because in the same way that our spiritual DNA, we should be evangelizing because of the truth of the message, we also should be meeting in community. We also should be having fellowship with each other. The word fellowship here is the word koinonia. It means to, to have things in common, to share, to have fellowship, to have intimate fellowship with each other. Why? Because our vertical relationship with God always affects our horizontal relationship with other people. Jesus becomes the center of our world, and it should affect the relationships around us. Right now, if you were to walk into your living room, I'm guessing there's a big screen somewhere, right? For some of you guys, it's a cool 3D screen, you put the glasses on. Others of you, it's a 3D TV from the 80s, and it's super old. But regardless, most of your living room is facing that direction, right? And that's okay, it's fun to watch TV and chill. But I feel like if you use that metaphor, and your life was your living room, where would all of your relationships and friends be pointing? Would it be at Jesus? Would that be what you guys have in common most? Or would it be the sports or the job you have or whatever else and not primarily the relationship you have? You see, John is gonna talk a lot about fellowship with God and other people, but they are not one or the other. It is the same exact energy. 
When we pursue God, it motivates relationship with other people. I'd even go so far to say this. If you're a Christian that is not having genuine fellowship with other people, you are not just a little tired spiritually. You're not spiritually you know, struggling. You are on life support spiritually if you don't have intimate fellowship with other believers. Why? Because we are not made to walk this road alone. We were designed by God to live in community. Now, does that get uncomfortable? Of course, because people are awkward and it's challenging to navigate the spiritual life, but we are made to walk it together. I don't know, maybe your hyper-individualistic worldview has challenged you from experiencing fellowship with other believers. I challenge you to forget about it. Get rid of it. I know that as Americans, we love our freedom and our individuality and our opinions, but the truth is God calls us to live in community. And that means we give up some rights for each other around us. And John's saying, man, we have fellowship with you guys. We're writing this, but then truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse four, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, some of you guys have a footnote over the word our because there are a couple manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts that say your joy. Because let's be honest, it would make more sense for me to say, I'm writing a letter to you guys so that way your joy can be complete, right? That makes sense. And so we think that some scribe along the way was like, that can't be right, and they adjusted it. Well, the truth is, the overwhelming number of manuscripts say our joy, and so we know that John is literally writing this just giddy. He's like, man, I'm writing this so that our joy can be complete because you've got to hear this message. Again, he is just so excited because it's fun to share this message. I'd argue again that if you, if you don't share the message of Jesus, it's probably because you don't understand it truly. Like, yeah, it can get awkward and talking about God's hatred of sin is challenging and, and people get all these bunny trail debates. But here's the thing. We are talking about the fact that God has promised us an abundant life where we can live a life of purpose and meaning, things that actually matter. We can live a life where death does not have the final word, but there will be resurrection and eventually we're gonna have a new heaven and a new earth. Like, I believe that. And this is the best news in the universe. This is the hope for the world. And so I don't know about you, but when you get, ex I get excited about this. Y'all get excited about this? Man, this is the hope of the universe and John is just so excited to share it. Verse five, and this is the message which we have heard from him, Jesus, and we are proclaiming to you, in this very letter is how he's proclaiming it, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. Look how some other translations have it. I love this, because in, in English, when you say a double negative, no problem, or whatever, that means that it's actually a positive, right? No problem means yes, absolutely. And then you start having the yeah, no, yeah, or no, yeah, no, and they mean different things. And it's very complicated to decipher. But check out in the original language, two negatives actually meant a super negative negative. So when he says God is light and there's no darkness, here's how the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Do you get the feel? And this is good news. But I wonder if maybe you've been swept up with the perspective of people around you. It's a privilege in my life to work with students and kids and young adults. Um, and and I, I love watching kids um, encounter the gospel. 
because they understand that God is light. It's not till much later when they see the fall of parents, pastors, and presidents that begin to get a little bit bitter in life, right? They start to see that the world is jaded and it's not quite as simple as it once was. And before you know it, this bitterness starts to creep in where they think maybe God isn't as good as what I once thought he was. You see, you see the brokenness of the world. You put your TV on for more than 10 seconds and you start to question, is God actually light? Is he actually good? Does he actually care for me? And maybe some challenging experience happened in your life the death of a child or the divorce or the you fill in the blank and before you know it, you're saying, is God actually good? Did, did God create the world perfect? Absolutely. Is there brokenness in the world because of the fall and sin? Of course. Can God allow free agents to hurt each other? Yes. Is there an enemy of your soul? A spiritual being called the devil? Yes, I believe that. I'm a supernaturalist, I believe that. However, is God to blame for the brokenness in the world? A resounding no. In him there is no darkness at all. Now this actually creates a problem for, for human beings. I don't know if you recognize this or not. To say that God is light can be also translated, God is holy. Right, we just sang about it, God is holy, there was no one like you. It's one of his top divine attributes describing what he's like, he's different. I think back to Moses when he encountered God by the, uh, by the burning bush, do you remember this? He saw God, the bush burning, and he walked over to the bush and he gets close and the voice says this, don't come any closer. The place that you're standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals because the place you are standing is holy ground. Why? Because God's presence, like the sun in the sky, is good for the world, but it becomes dangerous when you get too close. You tracking with that? God's holiness is so intensely good that it becomes dangerous for fallen human beings. Fast forward several years and Moses is leading the people now out of Egypt into the promised land and they, they, they are together at Mount Sinai and then God descends on the mountain and what is it like? There is black smoke and there is thunder and there is lightning and there is fire because God's presence is holy and so good it's intense and dangerous for fallen mortals. And the people said, you go up and talk to God. We don't wanna have anything to do with it. We are terrified. Why? Because God's intense goodness is holiness. And it becomes dangerous for human beings. And so then Moses goes up, he comes back down from the mountain, his face is literally glowing, right? Because he's been in God's presence. It's a super weird passage. And then he comes over and God gives Moses instructions for how to build a mobile tent, AKA a tabernacle, so that God can dwell with them. If you remember the very beginning of time, you have Adam and Eve with God in the garden, and the serpent's tale is this. Is God really good? Is God light? Is God as good as he says he really is? No, he's holding out on you. That fruit is actually good. It's gonna make you wise. Now, notice that the serpent is not saying, trust in me. He's not Ka from the Jungle Book, trust in me. Instead, the serpent is saying, don't trust anybody. Think for yourself. Be an individual, you are your own person. Don't trust anyone. And that serpent song is still loud and clear today, isn't it? But instead, in this moment, God says, trust me, trust that my way is 
better. And so then Moses assembles the people and says, we're gonna build a tent. And you'll read now in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35, the cloud, which is the presence of God, covered the tents of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Why can't Moses enter in the presence of God? Because he's unholy. Do you see that this, this paradox is this huge issue? God wants to dwell with humanity, but the problem is he's so holy, it becomes dangerous. We wanna be near God, but it gets dangerous. And so what happens after the book of Exodus, you have the book of Numbers, and check out this slide, this is cool. Um, um, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him, um, excuse me, spoke to Moses in the wilderness in Sinai in the tent of meeting. He's in the tabernacle on the first day of the second month. So God is now speaking to Moses from the tabernacle. Is Moses in it? No, he's not. He spoke to him um, in the tent of meeting, but Moses himself is not in it. Why? Because there hasn't been any way to make it possible for God to be amongst people. Are you tracking with me? It's a little technical here, but it's super important. Okay, the next slide. Here we go. You jump into Leviticus, and you, you hear about the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Again, he's outside of the tent, but then the whole book of Leviticus, by the way, who gives up on their Bible reading plan in Leviticus? Be honest, okay? I respect you. It gets weird. Half the book's an instruction manual for priests on how to slaughter animals. It feels very barbaric and odd to a 21st century Westerner who gets all of your meat already nicely packaged, right? You don't have to hear it bleep at all, you know? And so, and so here is Moses, and here's the priest, and they do the sacrifice, and the whole sacrificial system on how to be a healthy Israelite, how to, how to be clean before the Lord, how to have moral laws, how to have civil laws, all these things are wrapped up in Leviticus. By the way, seriously, read it, and read it again, and read it again. It is so, so good. I'm not kidding. And read it with a commentary, it all points to Jesus, and it's amazing. But the, the pinnacle of the whole thing is on Leviticus chapter 16 when the Day of Atonement happens, which is when they sacrifice some animals, then they bring two goats out, and they pray over one goat, and they put all of their sin uh, symbolically on one goat and throw them into the wilderness, the scapegoat. The other one then is sacrificed for the sins of the people that they've forgotten to do. And by that process, it becomes a yearly cleansing where the people can dwell amongst God. And to show you what this does for the community, let's look at the next book, Leviticus. Let's go to Numbers now, and we read this. This is so, so good. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness and in the tent of meeting, in the tent. Now Moses is in the tent with God because Leviticus worked, because the sacrifice worked. In other words, the propitiation, the covering over our sins worked, and now God can dwell amongst fallen humans. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, which creates a huge problem for humanity. Are you tracking with this? Now we know that we are justified because of Jesus, but there still is a sense in which our fellowship with God is on the line. Does that make sense? The same way we have fellowship with other people, we can also have fellowship with God, and that all depends on how we interact with him because he's faithful in his covenant to us. All right, now back in first, John. Here's some case studies now to say, how can we get along with God if he's so holy and we're so messed up? Number one, verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, John is not holding back. If you say, I've got fellowship with God, God and I are tight, we're great, but you walk in darkness, you are a what? A liar. Yeah, he's not, he's not, um, we'll get to this one in just a second. He's not 
uh, generous here, is he? He's not like, hey, you, you kind of fibbed a little bit. He's like, you're a liar. This is the person who has verses plastered on your ornaments at home, right? You have the plaques, you know, me and my house, we will serve the Lord, all that stuff. It's super great. Or maybe you have the bumper sticker Jesus, you know, I don't know, right? Maybe your Instagram bio has a Bible verse in it. But the truth is your life doesn't match up. You don't walk with the Lord. You say I've got fellowship with God, but you're walking in the darkness. That secret sin has allowed you to veer far off course. He says, you are a liar. And some of us are liars. And so I say this kindly. I've been a liar. I've been a poser, an actor, a fraud. And so the solution is always confession and coming back to the Lord. But the first thing you have to do is recognize that you're jacked up and you're lying. And maybe, maybe the first step for you is to recognize that you're not lying to other people, you're actually lying to yourself. That you're like, hey, I, 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 I think that I'm good with God. Why isn't my relationship with God intimate? Why am I so distant? Well, maybe because you're watching porn all the time. You know, I, I'm sitting here like, man, I really love the Lord and I feel like I'm trying to pursue him, but then I'm gossiping every chance I get. It's like, why is this fellowship not working? Because you've lied to yourself, you are not walking in the light. Now, that's bad news, but without knowing the bad news, you cannot make a decision to have the right repentance, right? And so I love you enough to say, John loves you enough to say, we gotta not be liars. Gotta be honest with the Lord and with our life. So, so step one, if we say we have fellowship, we walk in the darkness, we're lying. But, number two, verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we could camp out on that verse for a long time. So verse six says this, if you say you have fellowship with God, but you're walking in the darkness, you're a liar. And so that's, that's the first one. We say we have fellowship, we walk in the darkness, we lie. Now don't look at the bottom one yet. If we, the number two says this, if we walk in the light with God in the light, according to the logic of the first verse, what would you assume would be the ending of this sentence? We have fellowship with whom? With God, right? Now, if I'm reading this slowly, I'm like, oh yeah, you have no, you, have, you say you have fellowship with God, you're walking in the darkness, you're a liar. But if you walk in the light, it's in the light, you have fellowship with God. That'd be the logical thing, but that's not what John says. It's what John implies, but that's not what he says. He says, actually, we have fellowship with each other, with one another, because our vertical always affects our horizontal. And if you have fellowship with God walking in the light, it will absolutely drip into the world around you. It will transform relationships when you walk in the light. So I'm, I used to be a camp counselor at the best camp in Michigan, um, in the world, but Michigan especially. And Lake Ann Camp is in Northwest. Our summers, one year, got up to 75 degrees. It was great. We were allowed to go into the lake because before that it was too cold. But the lake had no gators. So I mean, you know, give and take. But um, this beautiful acreage of literally hundreds and hundreds of acres of pine trees and open fields, pristine, beautiful summer weather in Michigan. And uh, I got to work with middle schoolers one day uh, for a week. And this little cabin of middle schoolers, by the way, pray for your middle schoolers, okay? Of any age, if I can go back in time, I would not pick middle school. I love you all, but it is tough, right? You got hormones, you're becoming self-conscious for the first time ever, you're not a kid anymore, but people are treating you like you're supposed to act like an adult, you're so immature, but you are mature, 
by definition, you're not a mature adult yet. And so it's just very complicated and tough. So pray for them, love on them. It's tough, man. But, but middle schoolers are here and they show up to camp and they're awkward. And my role was to become the alpha middle schooler. And so I'm like, if I can like inundate myself and be the craziest one and then they'll follow me as their alpha, then we can have a survival week. You know, we can be safe. Um, but the first, the first few days, that's chaos. And then the fourth day was our night hike at camp. And uh, it was my favorite event of camp by far. Lake Ann Camp is super far from any major light pollution. And then we would walk miles into the woods and out into an open field after that. We were really distant from anything around us at night. Dust comes, we're playing some games. Then I have our students lay on their back and staring up at the trillions of stars in the galaxy. And they are just marveling at the beauty of the stars. My favorite was when the Chicago kids came up and they never saw more than like maybe a comet one time in their life. No, 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 that's actually a satellite, you know? And, and they get up into this, this area and it's beautiful. They lay on their back and uh, we start talking about the size of the universe. We start talking about Arcturus and, and the planets and start just describing the vastness of the universe that God spoke into existence. And as they're on their backs, we would ask them to look up at the Big Dipper. We'd have a laser pointer. We'd say, that's the Big Dipper. That's the box of it. How cool is that? And um, we'd say, how many stars can you see with just your eyes in the box of the Big Dipper? And now all the middle schoolers would squint and they'd stare and they're like, I don't think I can see any. The answer is zero. In the box of the Big Dipper, you can't see any other stars. Does this make sense? With the naked eye, you can see them with telescopes, but not your naked eye. And so at this point then, you transition and say, okay, I've got a separate question. If I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil and no internet and no book for 24 hours, first of all, that'd be terrible for them. <laughs> but second of all, how many names could you write down? Just to write down names, right? Think of Freddie, George, Bob, whatever. Start writing down names. One kid's like, eh, maybe 100. Another kid's like, no, man, 1,000. And then some doofus is like, man, a million. I'm like, okay, Bobby, cool, you know? But it doesn't really matter how many they can think of. Because what you say is this. Did you know from our perspective on Earth, looking out towards the Big Dipper, past that, when we can't see any stars, there is 100 million galaxies. And each of those galaxies has an estimated 100 to 300 billion stars in them. That's trillions of stars. Each of those stars might have its own planets and hoops and rings and asteroid belts and moons. It's a huge universe. And then we say to the students that just thought of any name they could think of and say, did you know that God breathed stars into existence? And did you know that he knows every star by name? And then you ask the student, do you think that God knows your name? And there's an audible yes as you're laying on the ground and in silence. Do you think God knows your Instagram password? <laughs> yes. Do you think God knows your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your challenges? Yes. And I'm telling you what, if this night goes well, those middle schoolers were once little anarchists running their own way, they become a unified group because they know that God is light, they know that God is for them, they know that God has their back and loves them, and then you know what they do? They start to love each other. And then it gets really dangerous for the counselor because now the only enemy is you, not each other. And so this little group of hellions are running around together and it's like, holy smokes, Lord Jesus, please help me, you know? So it was, it's beautiful though because our fellowship with God affects our fellowship with other people. When you walk in the light, when you know that you are in the light. And so part one says, if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with God, but also each other. And then part two says this, the blood of Jesus' son is cleansing us from all sin. 
is cleansing, present tense. Now this is cool because we know that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, amen? We are saved, we are declared righteous with God. But step two, we also know that we are being saved from the presence and power of sin. And then step three, we know that we're gonna be glorified, there'll be zero sin ever, and we will be saved on that day. And so we are in the middle of the story right now, and we are being cleansed by the blood of Jesus still. And so my encouragement to you would be this. When we walk in the light, we experience cleansing from God. Maybe you're here today and you have that little secret habit or sin or whatever, or you just don't feel close to God, you've not pursued fellowship with God, my encouragement would be, come back into the light. Can that be painful? Absolutely. I love shopping. Any dudes here like to go shopping? Besides me, apparently. Any guys? Come on, I know some of y'all like to go. Okay, thank you, thank you. So. I enjoy uh, shopping, um, and I especially love the dressing rooms that are poorly lit. You know what I'm saying? You walk in and try that shirt on, and I look like Superman, you know? I'm like, I look real good, there's no pore issues, I'm just, I'm looking fine in this mirror, and then I step outside, and I'm like ghastly white, and this shirt did not fit me at all, and they totally trick you, because the lighting is poor. But the truth is, when you walk in the light, your sin is exposed, and it's painful, but when you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Now here's part of the problem, part of the reason we don't walk in the light is because we think we have to cleanse ourselves up. We come back to the light and we're like, yeah, I'm trying to walk as Jesus walked, I'm trying to do my thing, and you forget that Jesus is not done with you yet. We, we wanna say that the problem of sin and death and hell, Jesus can handle. But the problem of fixing myself up now and keeping myself in the right place, that's my job. I get the keys, I take over. And this is a lie that a lot of people here believe. I'm telling you, we do. We do it all the time. We try to earn God's favor and love rather than receive it and be transformed by it. My encouragement would be come into the light and let Jesus save you in the present tense by cleansing you, by washing you. Some of you guys here, yeah, <laughs> praise Jesus. Some of you guys here, I would argue, have been saved, but then you allow not healthy guilt to drive you to repentance, but wicked shame of your past to hold you back. But Jesus is cleansing and washing. He's washing you, did you know this? And if you walk in the light, if he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. It's so beautiful. We gotta move on, you ready? Let's move on. Verse eight. Here's another possibility. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is the person who says, have is in present tense. I'm not sinning, I'm perfect. I've got it all put together. Now this is actually um, really unhealthy too because you're saying, um, Christians here, you're like, yeah, I'm actually, I haven't sinned in a while and you're not investigating your life trying to align it up with Jesus and submit to him. Um, it can be very, very dangerous, but he says, um, you're deceiving yourself, you're lying to yourself now if you say you have no sin. So examine your life and repent. But verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, the word is, is homo legeo, homo being same, and legeo being word. If you agree with God and say the same thing as God says about it, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what does that mean? 
when Jesus confessed, excuse me, when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he was agreeing with God about something. Does that make sense? I agree with you on your opinion about this. When we confess our sins, we are agreeing and confessing and declaring that we align ourselves with God's vision for the world. Unlike our ancient grandparents, Adam and Eve, who said, we're gonna choose good and evil for ourselves. You see the difference? It says, nope, even if I don't understand the commandment or I don't understand what's going on here, I trust your heart and I trust your goodness, and I'm going to confess my sin and say that that part of me is not good. And what happens? John says again, the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And, uh, and it goes on, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, this means ever, we're perfect. Um, I don't take long on this one. You're all lying to yourself, right? This is not hard to spot. I've never sinned. I'm perfect. Okay, Betty, sorry, you know? Um, you are not sinless. We make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Why do we make God a liar if we say we've not sinned? Because the Bible says that all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Now, that's bad news, but it's also good news. I tell you what, when I recognize that we're born into sin, it makes my whole worldview make sense. It makes it logical to turn on the news and see death and chaos and brokenness, right? And, and when I have a broken desire, it's like, oh, this was part of my nature. I used to do this because that's what I was, had a bent towards. But the good news is that Jesus comes in and rescues us. Now, there might be some of y'all here who think, yeah, actually, I've got it under control. My encouragement would be this. You don't experience freedom until you know that you're a captive, you don't experience freedom until you know that you are a captive. And we are dead in sin apart from Christ. And so he says this, you make God a liar if you say you've not sinned. Admit you're a sinner. We all are, but it's actually encouraging good news because now we know where it came from and now we can do something about it, amen? It's good news. Chapter two, verse one. We're gonna go up to verse seven, by the way. So chapter two, verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. Again, he, he did say that you're gonna sin. You can't say that you have no sin, but you can confess your sin. But I'm writing this so that you won't sin. Do you see his logic here? This is, this is a very complicated letter because it's a lot of like disjointed statements, but it flows, man. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you might not sin. His purpose and his report is to say don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is one of the least talked about character traits of God, and I get so excited about it. Jesus is your advocate. He is your defense. He is the one who has your back. If you are walking in darkness, or you think that God is mad at you because of your sins since you've been saved, I would encourage you to know that Jesus is the one saying, I paid it all. I've covered that sin. We already have an accuser. It's not gonna be you, it's the devil. And so quit taking the devil's role and accusing yourself. Instead, repent and come back into the light because you have an advocate. The advocate is the one at dinner who, when you're sitting there having your meal and you look over and your friend didn't get the right order, the advocate's the one that steps up and says, hey, uh, server, they didn't get the right meal. The advocate's the one that says, actually, boss, it wasn't their fault. This is what actually happened and they have your back. An advocate's the one that says, actually, we're not gonna gossip about that person because they're not here. We're not gonna talk anything about them right now, and they have your back, and Jesus Christ is the defender. He is your advocate. He is in your corner. Isn't that good news? 
That's such good news. But John's gonna drop an even bigger truth bomb on us in a second. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours alone, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation, he is the covering over, he is the sacrifice that we talked about in Leviticus 16. That was the propitiation moment when God was going to make it possible for God to dwell with humanity. And Jesus is called the propitiation for our sins. Now, I find it very confusing when um, pastors, I know that we're in a pinch a lot of time for time. We're trying to get you out of here so you can go to you know, IHOP or whatever you do on Sunday afternoons. But I, I know that um, we oftentimes will present the gospel as you're a sinner and so you need to trust in Jesus or else you're gonna go to the lake of fire for all eternity. So say this prayer. And that's very confusing to a person that's not grown up in the church or understanding anything about Jesus, isn't it? But when you look at the full narrative of God wanting to be amongst human beings, but his holiness drives them apart, but he wants to dwell amongst us, so he comes in the tabernacle, but then that wasn't perfect. And so Jesus, it says in John 1, dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us to be near us, and then now if we repent and trust in him, eventually God's gonna be among us in that new heaven and new earth. The whole story of scripture is God wanting to be with us, bringing us back home. And that makes sense when you see the whole picture. And Jesus is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice that makes it possible for God to dwell amongst man once again. And now, by the way, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning that God is now in us and not in a temple or a tabernacle, but he's moving through his people. It's a beautiful story. And Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins alone. Do you read that? But also the sins of the what? The whole world, meaning your neighbor, your friend, your frenemy, your enemy, that person that votes differently than you, everybody in between. He has died for, to rescue, to bring back to himself. God's vision for humanity is immensely greater than yours. He desires to bring all people to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's bringing everybody back, but we know that only those who confess their sins are going to enter into relationship with God. And so confess and invite your friends and build fellowship and trust in your propitiation, trust in your advocate. John says, this is the one that we have known and it's transformed everything about me. Let's keep going though. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now this is a really cool verse. This we know, present tense, that we have known him. Now I want you to think back to John, the very beginning passage of this whole this whole thing. He goes, that which we have known, which we have seen, which we have touched, which we talked to, which we hung out with, the Jesus that we experience personally. That's what it means to know intimately. And, and he's saying, this is how we academically know that we have experientially known him. You tracking with that? How do we know that we are saved? And the answer is very simple. If we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. But here's the problem. Christians hear this verse and they think, okay, so the way to prove that I'm a Christian is to obey God's commands. Okay, now I'm gonna obey his commands to prove that I'm a Christian. It sounds silly when you think of it that way. We're trying to prove the, the cause by the, by the effect, and we're trying to act like it's happening, but it doesn't work. Imagine an elderly couple walking around, see two young people kind of flirting by the lake, and they're like, oh, you guys are such a cute couple. They're not a couple, right? The boy's like, ooh, we do look like a cute couple. And so he's like, I'm gonna act like we're a couple. 
I'm gonna act like we're in a relationship. This is gonna be great. I wanna be in a relationship, so I'm gonna act like it. Is that gonna work, ladies? No, he's gotta pursue the girl to be in a relationship. See, the way that you get into that relationship, it might have the effect of looking like it, but if that boy goes in for a kiss, he's gonna get slapped. You know what I'm saying? But the truth is when Christians try to act like we have known him by our behavior, we are completely missing the actual circuit. The truth is this, if you want to obey his commands, get to know him. That's the logic of the statement. Get to know him. Read the gospels over and over and over again. Jesus interacts differently than anybody else you've ever met before. He's an advocate. He goes to the woman caught in adultery and he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And when the Pharisees are judging Jesus for hanging out with sinners, he's like, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And oh, by the way, Zacchaeus got saved because he was accepted and loved by God first. And then, and then there's Matthew, the tax collector, who he invited into a relationship with him. Come follow me, the jacked up tax collector. And Peter, I mean, Peter, goodness, he's failing left and right. But God says, I forgive you, I love you. He's bringing him back into fellowship with him. And then you obey his commands because you're overwhelmed by the love of God. Christians, do not make the mistake of trying to act like a Christian. Be a Christian. It's 100% different. You wanna know why Christianity isn't working? Because you're not saved. Trying to act like it will never work. And this is so tempting to do, especially in a world where we wanna act like we have it all together. But our pride will be our downfall if we don't come to Jesus humbly and say, I'm a hot mess, I need help. Whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him, excuse me, let's go verse, verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's like, I know God, but I don't keep his commands, he's also a liar. By the way, this word keep is toreo, it is I keep, guard, or observe, the same keep that's in Matthew 28 when God says, Jesus says to his disciples, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to keep my commands. In other words, a person who keeps Jesus' commands is the indication that they're a disciple of Jesus. Some of y'all try to act like you're a disciple of Jesus without being a disciple of Jesus, a learner, a pupil, a person who walks and is a friend with Jesus. My encouragement would be this. Keep his commandments because you know him. But verse five, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. The love of God is perfected, so you keep his word. Do you see the, 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 the way that he's saying this? When you experience the overwhelming grace of God, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, that he is life, that he is a propitiation, that he's an advocate, that he's for you, that softens your heart. And it makes you want to fall in line and keep his commands. Verse six, whoever says he abides in him, man, if, if you abide in him, you should, you should live that way. You, should, you ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Your life should emulate Jesus. Now, it's very important we get this order right. We be with Jesus first. He's the one that we have known. We be with Jesus, step one. And only then can you become like Jesus, step two. And then step three, then you can do what Jesus did. Do you see this order here? This is so important we get this right. If you try to do what Jesus did, apart from becoming like Jesus or being with Jesus, you're gonna get burnt out. But instead, he is the one that we have known. He is the one that I spent time with, intimate relationship with. I know he's my advocate, not just academically, but in my heart, he guards me, he's got my back. At that point, I become like him, and then I can do what Jesus did. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. 
Verse seven, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word or message which you have heard. This whole section is talking about this great message of Jesus. He's better than we could possibly have imagined. But so often our bitterness towards the brokenness of the world or our own sin leaving us in the darkness or our pride of not needing an advocate or our self-reliance of not trusting in him as our sacrifice keeps us in the dark. And my encouragement to you very simply is to walk in the light. Walk in the light. Like I said, I grew up in Michigan, and so um, I was raised by rednecks, very proud of it, I love my family. And uh, we do something every fall, we'd go hunting. And if you don't know what hunting is, it's when you go out in the woods, sit for several hours, see nothing, and then read a book, and then come home. And so it's really beautiful in the, in the Michigan fall, the leaves are changing, you sit there and do nothing. So um, one day, my dad and I are gonna go hunting together, I'm like this big, and so I'm like shuffling along, probably wearing sw- snow pants, because I'm like really cold, you know, and so I'm like shuffling my little stubby legs, and my dad, it's like super early before the light even comes out. And we're walking out into the field, and, uh, my dad can't find our blind, which is on the edge of this field somewhere. It's just like, Andrew, I don't know where it's at. We're in somebody else's property. We're borrowing from a farmer in our church, super cool dude, but we can't find it. And so my dad says this crazy thing, and I love you, dad, but this is crazy. He says, Andrew, stay here in the middle of the field. I'll be back. And so he drops everything, including me, and then starts sprinting back and forth on the field's edge, trying to find where this stinking blind was. And it's dark, and I lay on my back, and I look up and see stars and I am terrified, and I'm watching the light slowly get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and I can't see it anymore. And I'm alone in a field, this little dude, and I'm terrified, because I was in darkness. And then, little by little, from a completely different side of the field, my dad found it, he starts walking back towards me, and this light started off small, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, until I felt the very warmth of my father with me, and the light was there, and it brought security and hope and I was fine. And my encouragement would be this. Many of us here right now, we are happy to play Christianity, but we're not actually saved, and that leads to a challenge in our obedience and in our discipleship to Jesus. My encouragement would be trust in Jesus as your advocate, get to know him, and as you get to know him, you'll become like him, and only then can you do what Jesus did. Do you know him? This is the most important question in the world. And not just for heaven and hell, which is extremely important, but do you know him for your life? Do you trust him as the light, unlike Adam and Eve, do you trust him with his ways better? That that his plan for the world and universe is better? Or are you that hyper-individualistic, I'm gonna do it on my own, I'm gonna figure it out myself? Do you have fellowship with people around you, or are you self-reliant? Self-reliant is of the enemy. God-reliant and people-reliant is the community that God's called us to live in. Come back to the light. Just a few minutes, we're gonna have people that are gonna come down and we're gonna pray and we're gonna have a moment where you can peace out and you can go on your way. My challenge to you, very simply, whether it's up here, and that'd be awesome, or um, with family at lunch, talk about where you're at with Jesus because walking in the light is the only way that your Christianity is gonna make any sense. And it's the only way you're gonna have any power and any obedience, and any true joy. All right, guys, I love you. I will see you around. Thanks.